It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. I am really looking forward to talking with my guest today. Joining me is Dan McDade. Dan is founder and CEO of Point Clear, a BPO company that helps B2B companies with, <laughs> I'm using all these acronyms here, business process outsourcing company that helps business-to-business companies with complex sales processes drive revenue through lead generation, qualification, and nurturing. And also the author of a book called The Truth About Leads, Dan McDade, welcome to Accelerate. Thank you very much, Andy. Good to be here. Yeah, and as you mentioned, it's surprising this is our first time talking because we have uh, so many <laughs> first first order contacts and comment on LinkedIn, as you pointed out. So unbelievable. Uh, yeah. So take a minute, introduce yourself, maybe tell people how you got your start in sales. Well, I spent ten years in retail, and of course, retail is sales when you're working this floor. Oh yeah. Um, I spent about ten. 10 years in the direct mail marketing business, uh, a, a company called Harry and David and Jackson and Perkins sure. out in Medford, Oregon. Yeah. Fruits. And then after I, yeah, fruits and, and, and uh, flowers and, and all kinds of things. And then I spent six or seven years um, after doing a couple of years of independent consulting, I spent six or seven years in a company that is really more typical of what I'll call lead generation companies. And I say that because, um, you know, it, we, we, we provided a service, but I wouldn't say it was necessarily a first-class service. So when I decided to start Point Clear, which is almost 20 years ago, hard to believe, um, what I was focusing on was the quality side of the equation. Obviously, you have to create value for your clients, but you also want to produce good quality opportunities. So we really do three things. We provide highly qualified sales opportunities uh, to our clients. We mm-hmm. provide them with an effective market coverage model. Um, we can stay on top of markets and get the most value out of a market. And then we also provide, a, as almost like a byproduct of what we do, we provide a lot of actionable market intelligence. And um, so we've been we've been at it for about 20 years, and uh, I think we provide a real high-quality service to our clients. Very interesting. So, in your book, The Truth About Leads, I guess, ask the question, what, what is the truth about leads? I mean, you, you, say, <laughs> you say companies are, are confused you know, in terms of how they manage leads. I'll, I'll answer that question with part of the book I talk about uh, how much should a lead cost. And at the end of that chapter, I say um, probably more than you think, but probably a lot less than you're currently spending. <laughs> and I say that. I say that because just as an example, uh, a client a couple of years ago was spending $23.15 on content aggregator leads. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, the actual effective cost per lead was $2,660, which was about two and a half times what we would have been able to provide with a pure outbound program as opposed to kind of an inbound program. And what was the, so, what was the lifetime value of the contract? Uh, the, for that, the, for the, the value, selling. the value of the opportunity was, was pretty high. We're talking about, um, the, one of the largest software companies in the world with average deal sizes ranging between a hundred thousand dollars and a million dollars. Um, so, so the, the, the problem was as, as you've talked about on previous podcasts with other guests, the problem was that leads were going out to the field 
In this case, 6,000 leads were being sent out to the field, and because 98% of the leads were absolutely worthless, none of the leads were followed up. So the 2% or it's actually 1.8% of the leads that were actually worth following up were just being ignored. So that, so the problem is that in a sense they, they had an infinite cost because they were spending all this money generating leads that were being sent out to the field and ignored. Interesting. Well, okay, so you've triggered some interesting thoughts there. So you know, there's this, uh, I don't know if it's apocryphal data that's out there or whether it's, you know, it's true, but multiple companies have written about it saying that, you know, 70%, 72%, I guess inside sales numbers, 72% of sales leads are never followed up. And your fundamental point would be is that, well, that's because most of them are garbage. That's that's true, and I think the, the the bane of our existence is that the leads that we turn over to companies sometimes get lumped into other leads that they're getting, so-called marketing leads that they're getting. And we, if you follow serious decisions at all, we like the concept of the demand waterfall, and it starts with a marketing qualified lead, then a sales accepted lead, and then a sales qualified lead. Mm-hmm. We feel like there's there's very little reason why our leads should not be 100% sales qualified when they land in the in the inbox of one of the sales reps. Uh, that's not really true. I mean, it, it's it's hard to be 100% perfect. So there are going to be a certain number of leads that do fail for some reason, but the vast majority of them should be sales qualified. Where the the um, serious decisions demand waterfall. A good 65% of the leads kind of work their way out of the funnel uh, because they're not qualified or because the, the time frame's too far out or whatever. And then the problem there is is that the, the opportunities that are just not short-term are basically forgotten and they're not nurtured to the point where they could be recycled back to the sales force in a reasonable period of time. So kind of a double whammy that you find companies spending a lot of money on relatively inexpensive so-called leads that go to the sales force and don't get followed up. And then the ones that do get followed up and are too far out, So, just as an example, they're basically ignored. They don't go back into a nurturing function any place in the company because really marketing is not set up to nurturing and sales doesn't like to nurture. <laughs> so there's well, yeah, a real problem it, there. Right, and marketing only nurtures to the point where they hand it off as a sales accepted lead, right? <laughs> I mean, so right. they've got a lead that comes in and they do their scoring and they they take them through the funnel until they become an MQL to an SI news set, a sales accepted lead and off to sales. Um, so what's what's the solution to that? Besides, I mean, I know using your company <laughs> helps in that, but for most organizations <laughs> is, is, you know, what's the what's the answer to nurturing the leads where the time frame is not quite right? Yeah, and, and sometimes using our company isn't the answer because there's a basic broken process within the company. A lot of times if we have – we we try to maintain contact at the senior levels in organizations rather than getting shuffled down because sometimes when you get shuffled down, you know, basically you're, you're working with people that don't really have any pull in the company. But mm-hmm. – I like to call, talk about. I like to talk about the concept of a judicial branch. The concept of the judicial branch is, is that if, in fact, most companies don't do this, but if, in fact, you have a common definition of a lead, or what Brian Carroll calls the universal lead definition, um, if you do have a common definition of a lead, then. Anytime that there's an exception, it should be investigated or evaluated. So, for example marketing turns a lead over to sales and sales doesn't accept it if they proactively reject the lead then we we need to find out is it being rejected 
for the right reasons, that it did not meet the lead qualification criteria, or it was rejected for what serious decision sometimes calls an unintuitive reason, which is I called twice, they didn't call me back, so they must not have really been a lead. <laughs> and the, the, the other, so if there was a if there was a judicial branch, and unfortunately the judicial branch can't be made up of just marketers or just sales sales executives or even sales and marketing executives, you have to have a COO or a CFO or a CEO or somebody else that's kind of outside these these departments. Because if they could have solved this problem, they would have, and, and they're not going to be able to solve the problem. And the only way you really solve the problem of you know dumping garbage on sales reps, and then you know sales constantly complains about the lead quality or they're not getting enough leads. Marketing constantly you know complains about the fact that they don't get feedback from sales, and sales doesn't follow up on the leads. The only way you're going to fix that problem is to number one have a, a lead definition that everybody buys into and then number two put it the judicial branch in place for a period of time to to some extent validate and, and maybe even calibrate the lead definition and find out really what's going on in the organization because as as funny as it sounds or as odd as it sounds this is a it's a relatively simple problem but when you talk to CEOs about databases and leads, you know they don't care about databases no, and leads. No. They care about revenue. And and but unfortunately, if they don't start caring about leads, um, and I'll give you an example of that in just a minute. If they don't start caring about leads, then it's go it's going to continue to be a real problem because they'll waste marketing dollars and they'll squander opportunities that are kind of hidden under you know a pile of garbage. Some years ago, and this client actually recently sold to another large company, but we worked with this one company for 10 years. And about nine and a half years ago, the CEO of the company sat down and actually reviewed and listened to 126 leads. And his conclusion at the end of this was that 125 out of the 126 were solid gold leads that sales reps should be following up on. And that was a revolutionary moment for that company. For the next five years, they grew at 45% compound annual growth rate per year. And most of that they attributed to our doing the lead generation work for them. Uh, we had a staff of 10 at one point just satisfying this company. So there was an example of a CEO who took you know the, the role seriously because he said he was about ready to, to – discontinue the contract with us right. because the feedback he was getting from sales and and had he not done the work that he did we would have been out and he would have not grown 45 percent per year compound well, annual growth rate for the next five years right so some of that response you're getting from sales just sort of ingrained sales skepticism of uh, i'll use the category marketing generated lead that perceived this as a marketing generated lead and hey we all know in their minds they're saying hey we all know those are never good leads so we're just not gonna follow up Right. Um, I, I think I think the other thing is, which is that there's actually a blog on our website that's a nine-part series, but it has seven truths, what CEOs need to know about sales and marketing to make them tick. And, and one of the things that we have found is that sales executives, for the most part, don't really know how to, how to follow up on a lead. Um, a lot of times, in fact, we had one where we happened to be doing a warm transfer of a lead to a sales rep up in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, and his opening statement to the prospect was, I understand from some telemarketing company we use in Atlanta that you're interested in buying something. What is it? <laughs> so, so, and as, as outlandish as that sounds, unfortunately, it happens more often than not. And a lot of times our, we, our clients will allow us to actually put a little training program together for the sales reps to say, here's how you actually follow up on a lead. Uh, I, even our own SVP of sales, um, unfortunately, uh, uh, 
did not early on buy into the fact that, you know, you might call and email a lead three, four, five times over the course of a couple of weeks because even though we had a scheduled date, so to speak, 50% Mm -hmm. of the time that scheduled date isn't met. And and, um, I always always tell people that, you know, if you wanted to have dinner with another couple a couple of weeks down the road, could it possibly take more than a couple of phone calls, a couple of emails, and maybe a couple of texts in order to come up with a date and time and a place? And the answer is, of course, you know, people are busy. Sure. It takes it takes a little bit of time, but you know you have to check with your spouses. You got all these other things going on. So so why would a prospect that doesn't know you roll over on the very first call and you know fall all over themselves in order to take the call and make sure that they make the meeting? They don't because they get busy, not because they're not interested. So it takes m- multiple follow ups, um, and that's something that sales executives really don't want to do. Unfortunately, they have to do it. And if you have a decent lead, and in our case, with the exception of the state of California, we provide digital audio files to substantiate the leads just from a quality standpoint. If you if you listen to the call and if you follow up appropriately, then you're going to get a much higher at that percentage than if you call twice, they don't call you back, and then basically you assume that the lead is no good. Well, so let me go back to a question I had asked before then, is, is why – why does lead follow-up still seem to be this universal problem? Because, yeah, especially in the case, let's say a company uses your services. I mean, gosh, you know, the fastest, easiest ways to go out and capture new businesses to follow up on these leads that are given. Um, and even companies that yeah, still have to do some initial qualification screening of leads, it's still, to my experience, it still has been the fastest path to growing sales is to follow up on good quality leads. But even with good quality leads, reps have this reticence about doing it. You know, I've had some. I've, I've you know, I've been on some LinkedIn discussion boards where I've had you know, s- listen to senior salespeople say, you know, the only good lead is one I develop myself. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, why does that still persist? Do you think? I think it has to do with the mentality or the skill set of the sales rep. You know, I always talk about their hunters, beaters, and farmers. And unfortunately, there are way more farmers than there are hunters. I'll give you an example of that. We were working with a company that was selling to um, the Department of Defense. And one of the guys that was on the kind of the project team, his his total total territory was one Air Force base down mm-hmm. near Macon, Georgia, Warner Robbins. And he told us, you know, just categorically, he said, you, th- there's no sense in your calling Warner Robbins because I'm there every day and, you know, I know everything that's going on there. And the marketing VP sh- shook her head and said, you know, you call Warner Robbins just like any place else. And the first week <clears throat> we uncovered a lead that closed for a million dollars. Uh, that this sales rep knew nothing about. And that was because he was really more of a farmer than a hunter. He was much more comfortable. I call it the milkman delivery. He was really more comfortable going to the same places every day of the week, you know, having coffee with this person, having lunch with that person, and was much more comfortable dealing with people that he knew and people who were allowing him to make a good living, as opposed to really stretching himself to go into some of these new departments. So if you've got a pure hunter, um, the last thing you want, of course, for them to do is to farm. But if you have a pure hunter, they're going to be much more apt to be aggressive. The company that I talked about a little while ago where the CEO listened to 126 leads, their best sales rep 
was absolutely tenacious. I mean, he was unbelievable. He closed a higher percentage of our leads than anybody else on the sales force. And I think that was because he had, he was a true hunter. Everybody else out there were farmers and farmers are uncomfortable, you know, sticking their neck out into a new situation where they don't know the players. So composition of the sales team really becomes important then. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's a sort of a common theme, and and yeah, whether we call them hunters or farmers is is what I find is that too few companies still in their hiring um, do the assessments and the deep dives they need to do to really make sure that people's skills and abilities align with the job they need to have done. When one of which is a key one, oftentimes is following up with leads. Yeah, another good example of that is we actually do an, an assessment, um, and we have an assessment for individual contributors who, um, you know, what we call our our inside sales executives, inside sales reps, um, and that compares to another assessment we do for uh, closers, people who are responsible for closing business. And what we find is is that a lot of companies um, are making a mistake by taking people that they want to eventually put out in the field as a sales executive and having them train as an inside sales rep. And the the mentality and the skill set of these two t- positions is so different that in, in the end, if you have somebody that's successful at and willing to do inside sales, they're, they're probably the last person you want to deploy as a hunter. And anybody that's a true hunter, they're not going to last long in an inside sales position. So to your point, there's a lot more assessing that needs to be done, you know, probably a lot more um, understanding of the territories and making sure that you don't force a, a farmer into a situation where they have to hunt because they're, they're not going to like it. They're not going to be good at it. And as a result, you're going to lose business. But we're seeing, and I think one of the conundrums, I was just interviewing another guest about this earlier this morning about sort of one of the conundrums exists in this sort of increased world of specialized sales roles within an organization, whether it's, you know, you got your sales development reps, you got your account execs here. Um, yeah. How do you transition people from one role to another? How do you give people a career path that makes sense that uh, gives them something to shoot for? Cause otherwise oftentimes those inside sales roles tend to turn over so quickly. Yeah, they do. And uh, it, it's a good point. The, the inside sales folks tend to be better to, if they're really good at inside sales, if they like inside sales they tend to be better deployed as a as a farmer than a hunter and maybe they can their growth path is to closing business if this company's selling a SaaS solution as an example where it doesn't really warrant field sales it just requires an inside sales rep um, that's oftentimes a good migration path yeah but, not but you're right I mean two and a half years generally is enough for people you know oh yeah yeah, I think the industry averages one one point four years uh, in an SDR role before mm-hmm. they either mm-hmm. burn out or decide that uh, that's you know it's not the career for them. So, unfortunately, we ha- we have a number of people. I mean, we we actually have people that have been doing the job for us for ten years and or more. And so, fortunately, there are some people that just that they, what they like is they like the fact that they can come in at a certain time in the morning, leave in the afternoon, and not take the job home with them. Exactly. So, um, but but that's rare. I mean, I'd say probably you know maybe twenty thirty percent of our staff has been with us a very long time, and the rest have been with us longer than the industry average, but certainly not as long as we would like. Yeah. Well, you had an interesting uh, blog you had recently written about is uh, about a question you had posed on a LinkedIn group about minimum acceptable close rate on leads, and I, I thought a lot of the responses you got were were pretty interesting on that. 
but I thought mm-hmm. your, I thought your conclusion was also kind of interesting as well, which is that uh, no one really seemed to have an answer. There are no real specifics. I mean, did would you formulate your own opinion about is there is there could there be such a thing as a minimal acceptable close rate on leads? I think you can I think you can calculate it because basically it's a break even point analysis. So I think you can calculate that and it's a lot lower than what most companies use. I think it's interesting for example going back to serious decisions for just a moment. Mm-hmm. Um couple of, couple of years ago they said that at the average companies, you know, the the sales reps close about 20% of the sales qualified leads. Right. And best in class companies close about 30% of the sales qualified leads. And if you ask most sales reps, they'll tell you, oh, you know, if you give me a good lead, I'll close 60 or 70% of them. What they're really saying is they're saying they would close 60 to 70% of the ones that they thought they were going to close, <laughs> not 60 to 70% of the total. So um, we've seen close rates as low as 4 to 6 percent and the client made a lot of money at a close rate of four to six percent should it have been higher absolutely uh you know there was it's it's unfortunate that sales reps become busy you know in a closing uh closing business where they something has to give and what gives is the you know the follow-up on the lead that wasn't quite as far along as the one that they're working on right now to close um but you can do a break-even point analysis and and you'll find that for any kind of reasonable, you know, fifteen thousand dollars monthly recurring revenue for a SaaS solution, or it's fifty to one hundred thousand dollars, the close rates can be pretty low, especially in a in a situation where you've got software involved with large margins or high big margins. So, but should it be? So, I mean, I was at the Saster conference uh, earlier this year, and yeah, they're talking about industry average close rates, low twenties, you know, twenty two, twenty three percent on qualified opportunities, not on not on leads, on qualified opportunities. It, right. That seemed low. I mean, it seemed like, hey, that's a model where what we're doing is we're just throwing a lot of stuff up and we're scaling as quickly as we can and we're not optimizing our process and we'll take 23 as long as the growth, you know, the top line growth is still good. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, what you hear most of the time is reasons for the close rate being low is no decision. Um people are very risk adverse uh, you know they they started being much more risk adverse in 2008 and i think they're still uh, very cautious with how they spend their money so i think what you'd find is probably at least half of that difference is going to be no decision and then there are not a whole lot of companies that just offer such a whiz bang solution that nobody else can match them so you know unfortunately because of the competition you're going to lose some to the competitors as well um so i i to me uh, that serious decision, 30% close rate, to me, does seem kind of optimized as opposed to the, and I believe that the average companies are probably 20% or less. Okay. Yeah, that's something something to think about. I mean, spending time talking to companies and, and people about this because it, uh, yeah, I mean, 30 maybe sounds a little more, a little more reasonable. The 22 seemed like, gosh, we're probably spending a lot of time with people that are unqualified prospects. Mm-hmm. Now you you yep. you talk about in your business and you advocate for this multi-touch, multimedia, multi-cycle strategy for lead gen and follow-up. So, may tell us what that is, and and because one of the words we're hearing a lot these days, obviously, is cadence. You know, sales technology enabling people to put together automated cadences and so on. Is, is this different from a cadence, or it's just your own own verbiage for it? I think that it's a little bit of both, probably. Um, 
there's there's something approaching two thousand sales and marketing enablement solutions out there right now. <laughs> I know up from and, up from, from two hundred in the last three years, I believe. Exactly, and unfortunately, you know that the red hot thing right now is account based marketing. I'm sure you've mm-hmm. heard a lot about it and read a lot about it. And in fact, it was fascinating to see. Um, John Miller from Marketo start Engageo, and some of the reasons he was starting Engageo is because marketing automation doesn't work for everybody, but account-based marketing does. And and I think the the problem is a couple of things. One it is animated cadence. Uh, I'll give a specific example uh, that that. Lower-level executives are much more responsive to marketing automation, and, and they'll give you their digital body language a lot more uh, so than more senior executives. And more senior executives are much more responsive, about two and a half times more responsive to a quality, multi-touch, multimedia, multi-cycle program. So, so what does that mean? Well, the multi-touch, multimedia, multi cycle program simply means that it might take an average of 10 touches over a period of two weeks in order to either engage a prospect or to get to the point where you've invested enough time and it's time to move on to a net new fresh name, rest that name that wasn't responsive, and then go back after them again maybe uh, three months or four months later. Um, so that that's the first thing. Then as far as it, the, the reason that we don't necessarily like to automate this entire process is, is it takes the kind of the intuition or the um, the intelligence of the, exe- the the business development rep out of the equation, just like a good sales exec can kind of smell that, yeah, this is a real opportunity. I can win this one. And sometimes they say, you know, there's an opportunity here, but I don't think we have a chance. It's the same thing with inside sales reps. You know, they get a sense for this one isn't isn't worth investing 15 touches on, and this other one is worth investing five or six touches. Whereas, whereas automation, you basically set it up, and it does exactly what you tell it to do. But it's not necessarily the path to victory. You know, it may be that if you invested, we had one situation where on the 42nd touch, the the CMO of one of the top 50 utilities in the country responded and said, don't stop calling me or my conscience. I've been wanting to talk to you. I've just been extremely busy. Five months later, that closed for a billion dollars. It was a business process outsourcing um, contract for, with, with a large global consulting company. And so it was, you know, 42 touches too many? No. In that case, it was exactly the right number. Now, that's kind of a, an example that's off the chart, but uh, you, you don't want to automate it to the point where you can't have a human use some intelligence to figure out how much time they should invest in the touch cycle. Well, it's interesting. Again, uh, interesting issue because, again, we see oftentimes, in, especially with uh, in the tech space, a lot of SaaS companies, <laughs> is that they're so metric-driven that that environment couldn't exist, you know, that you talked about. Right, right. And and in some cases, you know, for example, a relatively low price commodity or a relatively low price solution, um, you really can't afford to use uh, ex- extensive outbound and and all of the touches that I'm talking about because the the margins just aren't there to do it. Um, but in other cases where you've got either the top 40% or top 30% of your market or something where you've got $15,000 per month or, you know, a $100,000 deal, you really can't afford to wait for the market to come into you. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I, you've probably heard of um, the ITSMA and the ITSMA 
has come out in 2016 saying that it's a myth that 70% of the sales process is complete before a sales executive needs to get involved. And especially senior executives, they want somebody to um, to work with them to figure out what's really happening. And they want somebody that solved this problem multiple times when they're only going to have to solve it once and they don't want to take a risk. So they're going to reach out and they want help from the early stages of education all the way through close. Yeah, well, it's interesting that you bring up that stack because I thought somewhere you had in one of your posts too that 80% of vendors said that they reached out to the seller to initiate the sales process. That's that's absolutely right. Um, so and, so and how do how do those a... how do those two play with each other? <laughs> I think that the um, I, th- I think that the market right now became or had become so inbound oriented that they they were the ones that were talking about cold calling is dead right. and outbound is interruption marketing and that kind of thing. I think you know slowly but surely I think their tune has changed on that and I think you heard uh, one of your most recent guests um, talk about that and talk about defending the the reason for outbound. Um, so I think part of it is that. Marketers were looking for an easy solution, and the easy solution was to automate everything. It's happening right now with account-based marketing. We were talking right. about just a couple minutes ago. Right. It, account-based marketing is now synonymous with IT, IT, IP marketing, so it's all about you know figuring out if somebody from XYZ company is on your website and alerting the sales rep so that they can take some action. Um, you know, to me, that's really interruption marketing. Uh, that's not that's not really what I would call good marketing. And for the most part, if, unless you have, uh, unless they have cookies on their computer or, or you know, that you have another way of identifying them individually, all you know is is that some big X Y Z company has somebody on your site. That's not a lot of help. Uh, the the real account based marketing is basically making sure that you carve out a significant enough, but a small enough number of targets where you basically know everything about them. You've got mm-hmm. triggers set up, you, you've profiled them, you know, you really understand the marketplace and the individuals that you're most interested in selling to in that market. Um, and and there's, I'll give you just a quick example of how that's not working. We have a, a client that we've worked with now for over 10 years and they've had some turnover in marketing and one of their targets is um, 300 companies with a very, very specific title. And I won't tell you the details about this because I don't want to create a problem for them. But instead of picking up the phone and calling these 300 people, because it's literally 300 people and it's very, very targeted, um, a very, very targeted market. But instead of picking up the phone, they're targeting thousands, literally thousands of, of people with email, hoping that some of the 300 actually respond. And our task is to follow up on anybody that responds. And for the most part, the 300 that they really want to talk to aren't responding. So how much easier and how much less expensive would it be for them to basically, uh, we already know who the targets are. We already know what the decision maker title is. Why don't we just go talk to them? You right. know, if we did that three times, we'd get a lot further than sending out 6,000 emails and putting you know IP marketing on websites and and, and that kind of thing. I, just just an example of what's going on today. Right, and potentially annoying the, the prospects in the, in the bargain. So uh, right. good. Now we're going to go to the last segment of the show. I've got some standard questions to ask all my guests. And the first one, Dan, is a hypothetical scenario in which you, Dan McDade, have just been hired as VP of sales at a company whose sales have stalled out. 
and the CEO is anxious to get sales on stuck back on track. And yeah, I know Rome's not built in a day. You can't turn on things in one day. But what would you do? What two things would you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? I think there's there's a great book out there called Sales Management Simplified by a guy by the name of Mike Weinberg. Don't know if you've had him on your show. Uh, he multiple, would be a great times. guest. Multiple times. Okay, good, good. Well, he's he. I think he's a great speaker, and I think he his he. I, I like both of his books. One of the things he talks about is the most important thing is is a pipeline or a funnel review, mm-hmm. and spending real time with the sales executives really uh, what I, I call it the gun to the head so you know you're going to get shot if you underestimate you're going to get shot if you overestimate you know what you can close and one of the things that i would do is is sit down with each of the sales executives and say all right i've been reviewing the reports that you've been turning in for the last couple of months you know even before i was here and i see that there's a little bit of a pattern here that it looks like next quarter is going to be really good, but this quarter is going to be soft, and we have to fix that. So let's talk about the 10 accounts or however many accounts we need to talk about with each of the exec- sales executives and exactly where are we um, it, w- you know, basically do almost like a Miller Hyman blue mm-hmm. sheeting type exercise mm-hmm. uh, with, with, each, with each of the accounts. And what you're going to find is that um, you'll be able to ferret out relatively early on who doesn't really have a good sense for what's on their forecast and who really nails the forecast. So I think, you know, first of all, doing a real intense review of the pipeline or of the forecast and then also spending quality time um, planning how to approach each of these accounts. You know, really, you could you could say that's really account-based marketing, but, you know, how do you approach each of these accounts based on who you're talking to, what you know about them, what's their current environment, what's sure. the competitive environment, and is there really, is, is the, are they going to do something, is there a reason why they're going to do something now when they haven't done anything in the last year? Right. Account-based selling. So, right. all right, cool. Good answer. All right, so I got some rapid-fire questions. You can give me one-word answers if you want or elaborate if you wish. So the first one is when you, Dan, McDade, are outselling your own company's services, what's your most powerful sales attribute? ROI. Okay. Who's your sales role model? Oh, that's a, that's a tough one. I worked for a guy, unfortunately, he recently passed, but I worked for a guy who I think is probably the best sales rep I've ever seen. So, um, it's it's um, Tom DiPrizio was his name, and, and he worked for Dun & Bradstreet, but obviously he's probably the best guy I've ever seen work a, work a room, so to speak. Well, Tom, here's to you. Um, one book that every salesperson should read. New Sales Simplified. By Mike Weinberg again. Okay. Yeah. I have to tell yeah. Mike you're a big fan. And I am. I am. <laughs> and uh, last question is, what music's on your playlist these days? Uh, I saw Jersey Boys about six months mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. And we've just, we've just now gotten to the point where we don't want to listen to it every night. <laughs> so. <laughs> so Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. All right. I love that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Good yeah. stuff. Well, Dan, thanks for joining me. Tell people how they can find out more about you. Visit pointclear.com. There you can find our blog. Uh, the book, The Truth About Leads, is on Amazon, and uh, you can get it as a podcast, or you can actually get the hard copy book. And if you want, you can always email me, dan.mcdade at pointclear.com. Excellent. 
Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate part of your daily routine, whether you listen to commute in the gym or make it part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Dan McDade, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your business. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com. 